just uh, heard a, a story right at the start this morning, which um, I hope the people who shared it with me will forgive me for saying, but it's, it's too good just to keep to myself. Little boy, aware Easter is coming, and I think it was on Thursday, wondered if Good Friday, the next day, was the day for Easter eggs. And he is told, no, you have to wait until Easter Sunday, Easter Day, because that's the day when Jesus rose again. Good Friday is when Jesus was crucified. Easter Day is the day that he was raised. So, no, you have to wait until Sunday. To which this smart kid replied, well, if we eat them now and there's only empty wrappers on Sunday, that would be like the grave clothes. Isn't that clever? What well-taught children we've got here. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I'm going to look at something from Romans chapter 1. Those of us who are here every week have been uh, following this through. Um, And uh, we come in Romans chapter 1 to verse 16. But I'll just read from the 14th verse. Romans is in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, right uh, in the first couple of pages, you'll find an index and you can find then the page number. Romans chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, I'm bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. See here that Paul is a guy with a passion and a a conviction. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. He's writing this letter to his friends in Rome, or people who will be his friends in Rome. He hasn't met them yet. He's hoping to come. He's planning to come. And he says, when he gets to Rome, it's not that he's heard about the fantastic buildings there. He wants to go around as a tourist, seeing all the sights. He wants to get to Rome because Rome is the hub of the empire. It's a place of influence. And when he gets there, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. He's got a passion and a conviction about this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. He wants to tell everyone. He says, I'm bound to Greeks, non-Greeks, the wise, the foolish, all types of people, all backgrounds, all ages. He is enthusiastic and he wants to talk about this wonderful message that has gripped him and thrilled him. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Strange thing to say, we'd expect him perhaps to say, I'm passionate about the gospel, or I'm enthusiastic about the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed. And of course, there's every reason one could say, perhaps, to be ashamed of the gospel, to be a little bit reticent. A little bit embarrassed. Many people are embarrassed. And the, the way people speak today is in, in, in terms of, well, you need to keep it to yourself. Keep your religion to yourself. It's a private matter. It's what you believe in private, but you mustn't push it down anyone's throat. You mustn't, uh, well, just keep it to yourself, basically, because you don't want to offend people. People have got different beliefs. 
All beliefs are equally valid and got to be respected. So you keep your beliefs to yourself. That's the popular thinking and that's not new. That's always been the popular thinking. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. But on the face of it, as I say, there are reasons why you could be ashamed. What is this message? Well, you could present it like this. It's about a guy from a provincial town, carpenter by trade, suddenly comes on the scene with big claims. His big claims earned him some big enemies. Didn't last long. Within three years, he caused so much trouble, offended so many people, he got arrested. And because he was a troublemaker and things were politically sensitive, they did with him what they did in those days. They executed him. End of story. Except, we believe he's the saviour of the world. And oh yes, he rose from the dead on the third day. Kind of message that perhaps in a sophisticated place like Rome wouldn't cut much ice. A kind of message that people would be ashamed of. Rome is the sophisticated hub of the empire. A place where they scorned invisible gods. They preferred gods that you could touch and see. And an invisible God, no, they scorn that. Then certainly they scorn the far-flung provinces, which is where Jesus of Nazareth came from. And in any way, in any event, for in Rome, crucifixion was the way you dealt with people who were a waste of space. It was humiliating. It was the most shameful thing to do. And we're talking here about someone who's crucified. That writes him off straight away in the Roman culture. And resurrection, well, that's a joke. It doesn't happen, does it? Paul knows where he's going. And he says, I'm not ashamed of this message. Although there's every reason for him to be a little bit embarrassed about it. And furthermore... He goes on to say, in the gospel, righteousness from God is revealed. In other words, when you talk about this message, you do have to address the matter of sin. Now, that was not a subject that one would want to raise in Rome. Rome was famous for sexual promiscuity, sexual perversion. It was respectable to be like that. And to talk about sin... Well, that's something to keep quiet about. And then among the Jews, that's what it's like in Rome. But Paul says this is for, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. Well, for Jews, a, some, a, a person claiming to be Messiah who was crucified, a, a Messiah who suffered and died, well, that's blasphemy, particularly claiming to be son of God. An inflammatory message, which was why they put him out of the way. They were so incensed by these claims. But in any society, an inflammatory message, and therefore one, perhaps, to be slightly embarrassed about. And really, how it was in first century Rome is pretty much what it's like in 21st century Sheffield, or in 21st century 
Britain or in 21st century West. There are similar reasons to be ashamed, which is why we find this whole message is continually being attacked, either with open opposition or just with ridicule. Or maybe being toned down to make it less embarrassing, more acceptable to people in the 21st century. So let's forget about the resurrection. Let's forget about a message of someone who was dead through crucifixion, put in a tomb, in a tomb that unlike our modern graves was a cave, a huge stone rolled across the door, a seal put over that stone, a sentry outside to prevent any kind of messing around. And then on the third day, he's like, now let's, let's forget that. Modern man cannot accept such a message, we are told. And so, in many so-called Christian churches today, they will talk about a principle of resurrection, but not an actual one. You can't actually believe that. We've got to tone this down, make it more acceptable. It's continually embarrassing people. And many people are ashamed of this message. Strange thing is, back in the 19th century, there was an influential philosopher by the name of Nietzsche, who, among other things, came up with a phrase that has become popular ever since, God is dead. He wasn't saying that there was a God who had once been alive but now had expired. What he was saying was, in the modern world, as it was at the end of the 19th century, scientific advance and so on had, had made God irrelevant, no longer to be considered. And so this phrase, God is dead, came in to Western thinking in the 19th century. In the 21st century, intellectuals still find it necessary to keep attacking God. So the book that was out just last year, The God Delusion. Why, why do people have to keep attacking an irrelevancy? Simply because he's not irrelevant. And simply because he's not dead. And simply because you can't ignore him. So a message that many would feel shamefaced about, embarrassed about. If people ask you tomorrow, what did you do on Easter Sunday? What do you say? I was in church worshipping Jesus, or, um, well, I'm, and you sort of embarrassed? Many people are. Many people are embarrassed. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He had many reasons to be ashamed, but he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. When he says, I'm not ashamed, what he's saying really is, I'm proud of this. I'm enthusiastic about this message. Why? This message, which looked at one way, is embarrassing. Looked at another way, is powerful. That's what he's saying. To step back for a bit. The two main problems with humanity are pride and unbelief. They're the two main problems. Pride, thinking we can solve all problems. We strut our little time on planet Earth. The, when you consider the age of the Earth and how long we live, we're here for such a short time. We know so little, our intellect is so slight, and yet... Proud people make pronouncements about God. How dare they? How can they? But pride. And then unbelief. 
If you can't see him, don't believe in him. These are the two problems. And God's answer makes absolutely no appeal to pride and is a call for faith. God hits the two problems, pride and unbelief. So what is our message? Our message is Jesus. Paul says that uh, in uh, the the start of this chapter in verse 3. He says, the gospel regarding God's son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and so on. The gospel is all about Jesus, son of God, who came and lived amongst us as a real human being. That's our message. God, not believed in, rejected, regarded as irrelevant. This God came to people who didn't want to know in the person of his son who lived on this earth amongst us. And this son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came with a message, an announcement. And he's announcing the kingdom of God. He's announcing what God's reign is like, which is so different from anything we've ever seen on this world. And he not only announces it, he demonstrates it. So his whole life is showing something alternative, something radically distinct and different. He shows compassion to people who who others would reject. He's full of grace, full of forgiveness, and yet not so totally inclusive that nothing matters. He says a lot about hell. He speaks about holiness and right and sin. He says, we're not good enough for God. He says, unless someone is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So it's quite uncompromising. And yet, merciful, gracious. Normally those two things don't go together. People who are uncompromising can be a bit hard and bigoted. Not Jesus. Very straight on issues. And yet full of compassion. Wonderfully merciful. Seeing people gripped with situations that had troubled them for years, and he heals them, setting people free from afflictions, from demonic activity in their lives, demonstrating power, sovereignty even over the elements, famously walking on water, famously commanding a storm to shut up and be still, and it was, and yet gentle. So children would come to him. And he had welcomed them. Amazing. Unlike anyone or anything. Not only saying it, but living it. Demonstrating a kingdom. But that wasn't only the, re- the only reason why he came. He didn't come just to announce and demonstrate. He came to deal with the real issue. The real issue that separates us from God, and that is our guilt... The fact that we have refused to believe God, the fact that our pride makes us think we're good enough, we can live without him, and all sorts of other things that then flow out of that called sin. Jesus came to deal with that. Now the Bible tells us that sin deserves death. Jesus came to die in our place. Not just to die at the end of a long and eventful life, but to die as a sacrifice, as a victim in our place, taking a death penalty for us. That was why he was crucified. 
Not because events got out of control, but because he volunteered, as it were, voluntarily giving himself a sinless offering, dying in our place. But how do we know that he wasn't just another martyr? How do we know that he wasn't just someone else dying for a cause? Or because he rose again. The fact of the resurrection is fundamental to the whole truth. If we water down the resurrection or we get embarrassed about that, then really we have nothing left to say. Except we can point to one great teacher who said some wonderful things, but he takes his place among many other great teachers who have said many remarkable things. We know this man is unique. He died punished for your sin and mine, And to show that God has accepted that sacrifice so we can be forgiven, he rose again. Bible says he he was raised for our justification. It deals with our sin. Guilt removed by him substituting himself for us and rising again to show that's accepted. Hence, Paul says, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. That's powerful. There's something amazing there. That whatever we've done, whatever our track record, whether we think we're we're not quite perfect but pretty good, or whether we actually despair and we feel we're really bad, whatever our condition, whatever we've done, there is a gift of righteousness where we know our guilt is taken away and we're clean and we can know God and be with him forever. That's mighty. That's radical. No other religion offers that. No other religion deals with the root issue, which is our sin and rebellion against God, and that being not just ignored, but dealt with. That's why Paul is willing to go to Rome, and that's why Paul is willing to go there and not keep silent, but to tell anyone who will listen. He says, I'm not ashamed of this, because it had changed his life. He thought he was pretty good. He gives his testimony elsewhere. And he said he thought he was blameless until a crucial moment when Jesus confronted him. Then he realized, realized what he was like. He realized how wrong he'd been. He realized how blind he'd been, proud he'd been. And he found a savior who dealt with all of that and turned him round. His life has been changed. He said, I'm not ashamed of this. Someone who has had something remarkable happen will talk about it. And Paul has had something remarkable happen. He's been saved. That's the expression. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. And so this is his message. His message is Jesus. Now, as I say, this message confronts pride and confronts unbelief. Because the way this works is not by power politics, not by business methods, not by a celebrity culture, not by cleverness and wit or any such thing, but by the power of the Spirit. He says this is, it's the the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This whole thing brings us, this message brings us into something that is, again, I say, unlike anything we'll find anywhere else, where it's not something obviously powerful. We say, oh, yeah, that's attractive. I'll go for that. No, it's, we're talking about someone who was crucified, who rose again, who ascended to heaven. I think, that doesn't appeal to my pride. It humbles me. I needed a savior. 
And now I'm going to live by faith in him. And when I put my faith in him, then there is power. Power from God. That was demonstrated at the resurrection. As Paul says back in verse 4, we looked at that some weeks ago. Those of us who are normally here, we saw that this translation doesn't really make it very clear. But what Paul is saying there in Romans 1 verse 4 is that Jesus was appointed son of God with power by his resurrection. He had been son of God in weakness when he lived as Jesus of Nazareth. He was despised and rejected. He was able to be taken, humiliated and killed. He was there, son of God, but in weakness. But the resurrection, that brings him to a new status. Son of God with power. At the resurrection, all norms get smashed. It is not normal. It is impossible for someone who has died and been buried to three days later emerge. If we live in a closed world of cause and effect and natural laws, that can't happen. But the resurrection smashes all that. He's declared Son of God with power. And that's who Jesus is, powerful. And he says, now I'm giving you my spirit. And the church is a place of power. It's a place where God does amazing things, where lives get changed. And where people get healed. We've heard this morning of someone with a nut allergy last Sunday as we, uh, people came forward on these various food issues. And afterwards, Beth spoke with me and she said about this nut allergy and she was asking my advice, which I didn't give, asking my advice, what should she do now? If I eat a nut, it could kill me. But I've been prayed for. Is it okay now to eat them or what's that effect? I said, it's your faith. (laughs) I'm not sure if I said, I thought, tell you what, go and sit in A&E and try eating a nut. I don't know. That was my, but it's power. God touched Beth, took away, broke the bondage to fear and has also enabled her to do what previously she couldn't do. The church is a place of God's power. The church is a place where God is active because Jesus is alive. This message is powerful. And then read the testimony that's there in Newsby from dear Graham. The amazing things that God has done. God is not just an idea, not just a theory. He is son of God with power. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we are here worshipping him and speaking about him because it's not a gospel to be ashamed of. And who's it for? Paul says it's for everyone who believes. Everyone. Everyone needs this. Everyone has a problem, whether they're aware of it or not. And the problem is that ultimately... When life is over, they will stand before God. And no one is good enough to do that. Now, it's a, it's a pretty basic thing for people to want to be thought a good person. Most people, in their heart of hearts, want to be thought a good person. Whatever they've done, they will sometimes refer to, I did this and this, but basically as I'm a good person. That's an instinct. People want to be thought good. And indeed, people can be offended if you talk about heaven and then suggest 
they might not go there. People want to be thought a good person and they also want to think, if there is a heaven, well, that's where I'll be. And so there is this, in spite of living in a secular age where there's no room for God, people still don't, can't let go of the thought of heaven, the thought that this life is not, uh, it's not all there is. You see it every time you see flowers by the roadside or whatever, and little tributes, presents given, little messages to the person who has either been killed or whatever. And you think, what's in the, what's in the mind of people who do that? Well, they're assuming there's some, when we give them that message, they're going to hear that. When we give them that present or something for the afterlife, there must be an afterlife. That's in people's thinking. And they think heaven is where it is. And if you say, no, you're not good enough for heaven, people are offended because they want to be thought good. And so in the, the press just a few weeks back, all the events surrounding the, the death of Jade Goody, it was said, her children were told, she's gone to heaven. It's, that's the assumption. You go to heaven. Everyone has got to be ultimately good enough, but no one is. Everyone has sinned. And you might say, well, I've never done anything serious. But if you read your Bible, which I think is a good thing to do, if you read your Bible and you see right at the start, God created humanity, Adam and Eve. They sinned. What did they do? They took some fruit. Not, we're not, it's not specified what it was. In popular tradition, it was an apple, but it doesn't say it was an apple. Well, let's assume it was. They took an apple that God had said they were not to take. One piece of fruit, or maybe two, because Eve took and then she gave to her husband. So let's say two apples. And that is sin. And God because they've disobeyed him, breaks fellowship with them. They are expelled from his presence. And when Adam and Eve are expelled from God's presence, that is humanity expelled from God's presence. You think, does that matter? Yes, it's rebellion against God. All sin is sin. Everyone has sinned. We've all no we often say no one's perfect, are they? Exactly. No one is perfect, but God is. And really, if you think about it, for imperfect people to spend eternity in the presence of perfection would itself be hell. We need our sin to be dealt with. And this, it says, righteousness from God for, every, for the salvation of everyone who believes. Righteousness is a right standing with God where our sin is taken away and we can come to God, stand before him with a clear conscience, without embarrassment, without shame. And it's for everyone who earns it. No, everyone who believes. It's essential to receive this. That we've first of all got to admit our sin. People are unwilling to do. But without it, we stumble through life blindly to find out at the end how wrong we are. One of the major problems in cities around the world is something that people refer to as light pollution. What that means is that at night, because of all the street lights and all the rest of it, the sky is lit up and you can't see the stars. 
When you get right out into the countryside, away from all man-made illumination, the sky is dark, no lights are being kind of affecting the issue, and there you can see the stars. The, the sky needs to be black for you to see the stars. We need to see our guilt if ever we're going to see how wonderfully bright this gospel is. We're going to see the good news. We need to see the bad. We need to see we have sinned. And when we acknowledge that, then for everyone who simply believes, not earning it, not deserving it, but believing, there's forgiveness, salvation, righteousness from God that changes everything. It's changed Paul. He says, I'm not ashamed of this. Life-changing message. And, of course, he's seen hundreds and hundreds of people have their lives changed, all their perspectives altered by this wonderful message. It's God's good news, God's gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. Because it's God's message, it will be there forever. You can't suppress this. This gospel will be there when Darwin is forgotten, when Dawkins is forgotten, when anyone else is forgotten. God will be there forever. And this message is irrepressible because Jesus is irrepressible. They locked him in a tomb and he broke out. He's irrepressible. You cannot suppress this message. It is God's good news, forever relevant, forever vital until the very end of time. And the simple fact is, this Jesus is alive. He will not die again. He is alive. And furthermore, he is here. Jesus said that whenever we gather in his name, he's there. He is with us here. So we've been worshipping. We're not just singing songs, we're singing to him. And he is still actively doing what he came to do, bringing God to us and us to God. He's here. This is an unstoppable, irrepressible truth. Jesus is alive and he is powerful He's son of God with power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. So it is for those who believe. It's not earned. It's not contributed to. We simply come in faith. We say, I hear and I believe it. And we can come with confidence. We can come with confidence to receive forgiveness. We can come with confidence to discover what salvation is all about. We can come with confidence and see, yes, he is alive and he still heals people. We can come with confidence. This is powerful. He's alive. He's real. And we can also go with confidence to fill this city with this good news. The early disciples were accused of filling the world with this. Well, let's fill the world with this message. Let's not be ashamed of it. It's nothing to be ashamed about. It's God's power. You're not ashamed of something powerful. You're ashamed of something pathetic. But this is not pathetic. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. All around this room, hundreds of people who know this is true. Others here, 
maybe you've not yet discovered it's true. I tell you, it's for you. It's for everyone who will believe. Jesus is alive and he's here, not just to be spoken about, but to be encountered. We encounter him when we believe him, and it's that simple.